Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of June 4th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And what I have to rant about tonight is something which really gives me a lot of angst because I am going to, you know, have to call out and um, savagely criticize <laughs> a hero of my youth. Man, it really gives me a great uh, amount of, of pain and anguish and frustration. It really does. And I am talking about Roger Waters, the uh, former uh, bassist and uh, singer and songwriter with Pink Floyd. And uh, the reason I'm feeling compelled to do this now is because his name has uh, popped up recently in regard to uh, two issues very close to my heart. In fact, the last two issues that I ranted about on my podcast, which is to say Gaza, the Israeli bombardment of the Gaza Strip, and the elections in Peru, which are going to be taking place this weekend, which are pitting the fascistic candidate Keiko Fujimori against a left populist candidate by the name of Pedro Castillo. And, uh, you know, he made statements about both of these things on his, uh, you know, various soapboxes which were available to him, including his Facebook page. And it got, you know, shared on Facebook by lots of my friends. And uh, he said all the right things, exactly what I would have said. But this does not make me happy. It fills me with angst because it means that all of these, uh, you know, well-intentioned progressives out there are going to, you know, hear what he says about Gaza and about Peru and say, yeah, Roger Waters, this guy's cool. He's telling it like it is. And they are going to be ripe to be fed his evil, lying propaganda about Syria and about some other issues, which I'll also touch on. And uh, I guess I'm going to start by talking about, uh, you know, what what Pink Floyd, and particularly Roger Waters, you know, meant to me when I was coming up as a kid. And, you know, just I'll give a, a you know, just a brief overview of, you know, where they fit in and, you know, the cultural history of, of, uh, of uh, the, the cultural politics of rock music. Uh, people probably are aware that, you know, their first album uh, came out in 1967, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which to my mind was really the very best of British psychedelic rock. I consider it a part of a, um, a genre-defining troika, along with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Court of the Crimson King, by the Beatles and King Crimson, respectively, which completely altered rock music and made it a lot more heady and intelligent. Now, we also all know that the mastermind of that album was uh, the then guitarist, singer, and songwriter Sid Barrett, who shortly after the album was released um, literally went insane. <clears throat> Too much LSD, apparently, and didn't handle it very well, and uh, was thrown out of the band. And it was after that that uh, Roger Waters kind of became the uh, defining personality of the band, more so as the years went on. And in the 1970s, as they became very, very successful, their genre sort of changed. And this is kind of the, uh, the, the, the irony of the whole, you know, British psychedelic rock movement, which was defined by those three albums is that, you know, it, it could not have been so influential if there hadn't been, like, a real spark of brilliance there, and there was. 
But ultimately, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, in, in the long run, I don't think that its influence on rock music was salubrious because it began to, you know, lose its spontaneity and everything was about, uh, you know, um, high production values in the studio and less about, you know, rocking out and dancing and jumping up and down and having fun. <laughs> and in the 70s, with Pink Floyd at the forefront, psychedelic rock began to morph into what was called at the time art rock. Today, it's usually called progressive rock, a term I don't really like very much because I don't think it really was very progressive. The term art rock emphasizes its, its um, artistic ambitions, or we might say artistic pretensions. Eventually, songs were abandoned entirely in favor of so-called sweets and, you know, the form of rock, you know, drums, bass, guitar, keyboards, sort of, you know, aspiring to uh, achieve something on the level of, you know, so-called classical music. And as the 70s wore on, it was all getting rather out of hand. It was all getting rather pretentious and, and portentious and pompous and full of itself and no longer very much fun. <laughs> And then in uh, 1976, 1977, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, so it seemed, along came punk. Along came punk rock, which began as this real uh, sort of youth rebellion against stadium rock and corporate rock and the whole, you know, big pompous rock star trip, and in particular against art rock. And, you know, very famously, Johnny Rotten, the singer from the Sex Pistols, wore a T-shirt reading, I hate Pink Floyd. And, you know, I was a part of this of this of this wave of, uh, you know, young kids who um, sort of went through a, a an overnight conversion. You know, I heard the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and you know, later the Clash and Patti Smith and so on. And uh, immediately, you know, I went from worshiping bands like Pink Floyd <laughs> and, uh, you know, Emerson Lake and Palmer and Jethro Tull and Led Zeppelin. I went from worshiping them to despising them overnight. And I wanted my music to be, you know, fast and hard and aggressive and politically sharp, which some punk was, not so much the Pistols or the Ramones, despite their, uh, you know, Anarchy in the UK, the Pistols Anarchy in the UK single. They were more just being bad boys than actually being serious about the ideology. But um, certainly The Clash and Patti Smith and many of the other punks had a real, you know, consciously um, left-wing ideology and anarchist sensibility. And all of these old wave bands, you know, these big, pompous, corporate, hyped monsters of the rock world like Pink Floyd and <laughs> Yes and Led Zeppelin, etc., uh, you know, overnight, they went from being um, the gods of adolescent rockers to, you know, being despised and laughed at by a lot of young adolescent rockers like myself. And they began to feel very self-conscious about it, that they were being challenged and dethroned. And some of them just kind of fastidiously ignored this, which didn't look very good. And some of them tried to adapt their style a little bit, 
Led Zeppelin, most famously, they weren't an art rock band. They were more of a metal band. But um, famously, on their on their last album, on the photo shoots for their last album, they put on skinny ties like punks, which was absolutely pathetic. And the album was actually called In Through the Outdoor, implying that, uh, you know, even though they're, you know, out of fashion, they're going to, like, you know, come back and, and show all the punks who's really boss. <laughs> And of course, it came across as absolutely pathetic, and it was probably their worst album, and thankfully their last. But uh, Pink Floyd, particularly under the um, direction of Roger Waters, who assumed the role of the you know chief creative power in the band at this point, actually responded to the punk challenge in a very intelligent and honest and incisive way. With their two final albums before Roger left the band, there continued to be a couple of albums after that, but the two final albums that still had Roger in the band, the original lineup, so to speak, although technically it wasn't the original lineup because the original lineup included Sid Barrett way back in 67. All right, now it's a decade later. The two albums that I'm talking about, one was 1977, the same year that punk exploded in Britain, Animals, which was a uh, a look at precisely you know the 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 class conditions in England that you know uh, that the punks were were pissed off about, and very much a comment on the state of British society at that moment, and it was obviously inspired by uh, the book Animal Farm by George Orwell, only instead of looking at a uh, at a post-revolutionary society, it was looking at a pre-revolutionary society. It was looking basically at contemporary Britain, where the sheep, of course, are the, uh, you know, the docile masses, and the pigs are the capitalist bosses, and the dogs are, uh, you know, both the criminals and the police, and all who live by the ethic of, you know, fucking over other people in order to get ahead. And it can actually be seen as sort of a... Um, a prequel to Orwell's Animal Farm, because it does actually end with a revolution where the sheep actually rise up <laughs> and throw off their oppressors, quoting the lyrics from the song Sheep at the end of um, Side 2. This was, remember when albums were on vinyl, they actually had sides? Bleeding and babbling, we fell on his neck with a scream. Wave upon wave of demented avengers march cheerfully out of obscurity into the dream. And here, I've got to give a shout-out. If you really want to get deep into um, the album Animals and the, uh, the circumstances and political context for um, its songwriting and production and so on, definitely check out the, the video on YouTube, How Pink Floyd Made Animals, Part 1 and 2, on uh, the vlog... Vinyl Rewind. The guy who does Vinyl Rewind does a very, very, very sharp job indeed of, um, you know, exploring the uh, production and politics of the album Animals and how it was definitely uh, perceived as a response to the challenge of the punks. But the next album was even sharper. The last one before, uh, before Roger walked. The Wall of 1979, a big um, double album, concept album, yes, that dreaded concept album, <clears throat> with an accompanying movie. And this was even more 
blatantly grappling with the challenge posed by the punks. Because a big part of punk, you know, probably the, the central element of punk, really, was, uh, you know, getting away from stadium rock and getting away from, you know, the big corporate hyped rock star trip and getting back to, you know, kind of a garage rock feel and just uh, belting out loud, fast songs at the local bar and making it a lot more intimate and a lot more exciting. And <clears throat> the whole, you know, notion behind the concept of the wall was that uh, that when Floyd and other bands of their ilk were, you know, up on stage in these big arenas, there was kind of like a psychic wall between them and the audience, and they were being more and more, you know, cut off from the people that they were trying to reach, which was exactly the critique of punk. And mind you, they were not, you know, actually trying to emulate the style of punk, which would, which would have just come across as absolutely pathetic. They avoided that to their credit, but they were nonetheless, you know, responding if in the, you know, in their big, intricate, elaborate, portentous, overproduced way to the challenge posed by the punks. And dealing even more directly with the uh, rather grim political situation in England at the time, where, you know, Maggie Thatcher had just come to power, uh, and Reagan was just on the cusp of coming to power on our side of the proverbial pond. And in England, these racist and xenophobic groups like the National Front were on the offensive, and things were getting really polarized. And uh, this also began to, unfortunately, infect rock music. And this was really critical to my own political development here in uh, New York in the same period I was in I was in high school and watching all of this. And, you know, famously, you know, there were a, a couple of famous episodes. One was um, in 1976, Eric Clapton got up on stage at a concert in Birmingham, pretty obviously drunk and went on this ugly racist rant in support of uh, the uh, right-wing politician Enoch Powell, who was kind of, in some ways, he was kind of like, you know, England's answer to Donald Trump at that time. <clears throat> or England's precursor of what would, you know, more than a generation later become the, the Donald Trump phenomenon, again, on our side of the pond. You know, building his career on opposition to immigration in very clearly racist terms. So Clapton went on stage... Uh, at this concert in Birmingham and starts, you know, supporting, is, is, is talking about how we should all support Enoch Powell, who was going to stop Britain from becoming a quote-unquote black colony, ugly stuff. And there was kind of this um, Nazi chic thing that was going on in rock music at this time. There was the famous episode where David Bowie gave fans the Nazi salute once. And, uh, you know, said in, in, in an interview that uh, what, what England needed was a new dictator who would sweep all the riffraff off the street. <clears throat> I'm paraphrasing. I didn't actually Google it. Forgive me. But words to that effect. Now, mind you, Bowie was out of his mind on cocaine during this period. <laughs> and probably it was more a, uh, you know, an attention getting stunt than anything else. And it also has to be said that some of the punks also had, uh, you know, went through this period of, um, of Nazi chic. The poor, crazy, mixed-up Sex Pistols, in addition to, um, you know, posing as anarchists, their um, really messed-up bass player, Sid Vicious, 
who would come to a bad end, as we all know, also very famously wore a, uh, a shirt with a swastika on stage once. But there were also punks who forthrightly rejected all of this shit and launched a movement in England called Rock Against Racism, where they would hold, uh, you know, big rallies in the parks in, in London and bands like The Clash would play and they would, you know, forthrightly repudiate the likes of Enoch Powell and this whole fascist flirtation which was going on in rock music at the time. And talk about opposing the National Front and standing up to them, etc. And uh, all of this was also kind of dealt with in The Wall, the Pink Floyd album, <clears throat> where uh, there's an episode, it's kind of autobiographical, it's quite clearly kind of autobiographical, where... Um, the protagonist is a, a rock star who's obviously a stand-in for, for Roger Waters, who, you know, gets swept up in the whole big uh, media-hyped trip and kind of loses control. And there's a particular episode where um, the protagonist is um, usurped on stage at a concert by um, an alter ego who is kind of like a fascist demagogue who sings from the stage are there any queers in the theater tonight? Get them up against a wall. There's one in the spotlight. He don't look right to me. Get him up against the wall. That one looks Jewish. And that one's a coon. Who let all this riffraff into the room? There's one smoking a joint. And another with spots. If I had my way, I'd have you all shot. And this fascistic alter ego, who starts out as a as a rock star, eventually becomes a uh, you know he becomes a political leader, and sort of launches a uh, you know a fascist paramilitary movement. And they sing, waiting to cut out the deadwood, waiting to clean up the city, waiting to follow the worms, waiting to put on a black shirt, waiting to weed out the weaklings waiting to smash in their windows and kick in their doors, waiting for the final solution, waiting to strengthen the strain, waiting to follow the worms, waiting to turn on the showers and fire the ovens, waiting for the queers and the coons and the reds and the Jews, waiting to follow the worms. So even after I underwent my punk conversion, there were still a couple of old wave bands that I couldn't disavow, that I still had to, you know, admit that I liked. And Pink Floyd was one of them because they actually reacted. And this was definitely the work of the true genius at that time of Roger Waters. They reacted to the punk challenge in an honest and genuinely grappling and politically informed way. And I was impressed with that. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, I was glad that, you know, rather than, you know, going along with the crowd and embracing this Nazi chic that was in, in vogue among rock stars at that time, they, they satirized it and they repudiated it. And uh, in fact, you know, my, this was just as I was becoming a political activist here in, here in New York City. And my very first political involvement was when the, uh, the stateside branch of the Rock Against Racism movement was launched here in New York City in 1979-1980. I got involved with it, and uh, that was the beginning of uh, what made me a political activist, which, you know, I remain today, all these years later. So, 1980, the year after The Wall came out, 
uh, was the year that I graduated from high school and really the year that I uh, became a political activist, became politically involved. And, uh, you know, in the years after that, I, you know, I kind of um, dropped out of society to a certain extent <laughs> and became something of a nomadic hippie. And when I, uh, you know, got back into society again and uh, came back to New York, uh, you know, I got serious about being a journalist and being a writer. During those years that I was a nomadic hippie, I was, you know, blockading nuclear power plants and I bummed around down in Central America following the revolutionary movements down there at that time. Then I came back to New York in the mid-1980s and got serious about being a journalist. Uh, but the uh, the upshot of all this is that I stopped following rock music quite as intensely as I had in, um, you know, when I was a teenager. I was actually, <clears throat> perished the thought, growing up a little bit. <laughs> Only a little mind you. But um, I didn't really continue to follow um, Pink Floyd after The Wall. I think I I heard one or two of the albums that they put out after that, um, but I couldn't even tell you how many there were because I stopped following them. And I uh, also did not follow um, Roger Waters' solo work, I confess. Although... Um, my friends who did follow Roger Waters' solo work during this period, the 80s and the 90s, tell me that it was good. So I assumed that it was, although I didn't follow it. And then when uh, in, the, um, in the 90s, and really for 20 years, beginning in the early 90s, when I actually began to produce a radio show at WBAI, I played a lot of music in addition to ranting. And um, a lot of it was, uh, you know, contemporary neo-punk bands and whatnot from around the city and elsewhere around the country and around the world. And some of it was, you know, just play the occasional nostalgia cut from my youth. But mostly it was what is, um, for lack of a better term, is called world music. Now, I understand that's something of a problematic phrase, world music. It's been defined as, you know, somebody else's ethnic music. <laughs> <laughs> but basically play, playing music from uh, around the world, which was, you know, both had kind of a, um, a pop sensibility, but was also kind of rooted in authentic indigenous cultures. So I got, you know, really into music again as a radio producer, but it was very consciously um, international alternative music, shall we say, and not, you know, <clears throat> commercial rock music. So I kind of lost track of Roger for a while. Didn't really pay him much mind for um, a whole lot of years. Then in 2016, when Donald Trump was on the rise and uh, clearly represented a threat, and it became clearer and clearer that he really had a shot at the presidency, a video was circulating on YouTube of Roger Waters performing in the Zocalo in Mexico City, in the big central plaza in the heart of Mexico City, where all the, you know, the, the government palaces and the National Cathedral are and so on, this huge square, doing a live rendition with his new band of the song Pigs from the album Animals, with all of these images being projected on a big screen behind him of Donald Trump and making it quite clear that... <laughs> <laughs> that this was a uh, <clears throat> that this was his statement repudiating Donald Trump, and some of the images of Trump, which were being uh, projected on the screen behind the stage, were superimposed with the word "pendejo," 
which is a Mexican insult, basically used pretty much the way we use asshole here in the United States, although it literally means pubic hair. And this became a very popular epithet for, for Trump when he was in his ascendance back in, um, back in 2016. So I was just overjoyed at this video, and it was a really, really sharp rendition of the song Pigs <clears throat> from the album Animals. And I was like, yeah, Roger Waters, this guy has still got it after all these years. I was so enthused and heartened by that video. And then things began to go very, very, very awry. Now, people who have been following my work in recent years will be aware that one of my um, obsessions is how fascistic ideology, or even outright fascist ideology, is coming to insidiously infect the ostensible political left, which is most obvious in the support which is evidenced for the fascistic genocidal dictator of Syria, Bashar Assad, by at least broad sectors of what is perceived to be the left. And again, as I've said many times before, they will protest, oh no, we don't support Bashar Assad. We just oppose U.S. intervention in Syria. But that is a lie. Whether it is a witting lie, a conscious lie, or merely a lie which is being unthinkingly echoed, it is still a lie. Because when you echo the regime propaganda, when you rush to exculpate the regime of atrocities and human rights abuses, when you portray those who oppose the regime of uniformly and monolithically being jihadists and terrorists, you are supporting the regime. You have to take responsibility for your words. And once again, as I've said many times before, this is not an anti-war position because the U.S. actually did massively intervene in Syria and nobody on the left protested it because the U.S. was basically intervening on the side of Bashar Assad. The city of Raqqa, which was held by ISIS, was bombed into rubble by U.S. warplanes, just as the city of Aleppo, which was held by the, not by ISIS, but by the Free Syrian Army and affiliated and allied rebel groups, was bombed into rubble by Assad's warplanes and Putin's warplanes. So, Basically, you know, the foreign powers, the United States, Russia, Iran, have, you know, despite certain tensions and jockeying between them, basically intervened in the war on the side of Bashar Assad. You know, Russia more officially and less hypocritically than the United States, but ultimately the United States as well. Now, I, of course, supported the indigenous revolutionary Syrian forces the Rojava Kurds, and the Free Syrian Army, who were fighting both ISIS and the Bashar Assad regime, which are equally genocidal entities. But when you have nothing to say about U.S. warplanes bombing a city into rubble, do not call it an anti-war position. And when you rush to the defense of Bashar Assad and Vladimir Putin, who were also bombing cities into rubble, 
That is a consciously pro-war position. So don't try to call this an anti-war position. All right, let me get back to Roger. So it, uh, my first big moment of disillusion with him was uh, in April of 2018 at a concert in Spain. He got up on stage and said that a, uh, a particular member of the audience, a fan, whose name he mentioned, I believe it was Pasquale, <clears throat> had asked him to read a statement or allow him to come up on stage himself to read a statement in support of the White Helmets. Now, the White Helmets, as we should know, are a volunteer civil defense group in the areas under rebel control in northern Syria who are first responders who dig the victims of Assad and Putin's bombardment out of the rubble and get them medical aid. They are unarmed, unarmed first responders. And Roger Waters gets up on stage at this concert and basically portrays this, uh, this fan of his, this Pasquale, I believe the name was, as a, as a deluded dupe who supports, quote, the fake white helmets who are in league with jihadists and terrorists, quote, unquote. Now, this is a completely baseless lie. The White Helmets are not jihadists and terrorists. They are unarmed first responders. So, first, Roger Waters is repeating regime propaganda, Assad regime propaganda, and outright lies, just clear-cut falsehoods. Worse than that, they're the kind of lies that legitimize armed attacks on civilians, that all the people down there in Aleppo and Idlib who are coming under bombardment by Assad and Putin are jihadists and terrorists who deserve to get bombed. And finally, most hideously of all, is he was humiliating one of his own fans from the stage, by name no less. So this at least begins to approach exactly the kind of behavior that he was satirizing on his album The Wall, low many years ago, back in 1979, where, you know, the evil fascist rock star gets up on stage and says, there's one in the spotlight, he don't look right to me. Shame on you, Roger Waters! You've turned into exactly what you were satirizing back in 1979. Okay, then, that same month, April 2018, that Waters engaged in this disgraceful rant at this concert in Spain, I was not able to determine exactly what city. <clears throat> uh, that same month, the Duma chemical attack happens, leaving some 50 people dead and many more injured, including, quite notoriously, many children. We've all seen the absolutely ghastly images. It is still the subject of an investigation by the uh, United Nations Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which has released a report determining that, in fact, a chemical attack did happen. We are still awaiting a final report assigning blame, but meanwhile, it's been exhaustively investigated by human rights groups, which have overwhelmingly determined that it was the work 
of the Assad regime. And this was but one of hundreds of chemical attacks that the Assad regime has carried out since 2013, which finally resulted earlier in this year of the Assad regime being stripped of its voting rights by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And every time that one of these chemical attacks is carried out, the regime's supporters and apologists, including many so-called progressives, quote-unquote, in the West, whose voices are amplified by RT, Russia Today, the organ of Kremlin state propaganda, immediately start bandying about these conspiracy theories, about how the rebels really did it as a provocation. They gassed their own people as a provocation. Now, it's really quite extraordinary that people will believe that the Syrian rebels apparently have a limitless supply of chemical weapons, and yet they only ever use them against themselves. And in all of these incidents, including Duma back in April of 2018, the area where the attack took place was coming under relentless bombardment with conventional weapons by the regime and by Russia to drive out the rebels. And in the midst of this, the chemical attack happens. And shortly after that, Duma fell and was taken by regime forces. So it worked. And people can delude themselves into thinking that this was all a false flag attack and it was really the rebels doing it themselves to try to win sympathy from the outside world. This is the equivalent of Holocaust revisionism. It really is. And Roger Waters has been aggressively promoting this theory about the Duma chemical attack and bandying about these uh, supposedly leaked documents from a, uh, some dissident report, which was ultimately not published, from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, finding that the shells used in the Duma attack did not actually fall from the air, but were planted, which was completely rejected by the OPCW in their final report. And the OPCW is not an arm of the U.S. State Department. It's a body of the United Nations. And every independent human rights group, the same ones, Human Rights Watch and so on, who have been calling out the United States over the atrocities of Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and so on, and Trump's detention camps for, for migrants, have also been saying that the evidence overwhelmingly points to the regime being behind these chemical attacks. And yet Roger Waters was aggressively promoting this conspiracy theory and the supposedly leaked dissident document from the OPCW from some sub-team report, which was completely repudiated in the final findings. And of course, you know, he promoted these claims on his own Facebook page. They were aggressively picked up by RT, obviously, and by the uh, RT promoted, but ostensibly, keyword ostensibly, independent so-called leftist websites here in the West, such as uh, Gray Zone, all serving as an amplifier for Roger Waters, making these completely baseless, conspiranoid, blame-the-victim, pro-fascist, genocide-apologist claims. So disgusted. So utterly disgusted. All right, I'm going to read um, one short passage from RT, citing the Gray Zone, citing Roger Waters because it really illustrates just how far out of whack we are. I read, A leaked phone call, first reported by the Gray Zone, reveals that Amnesty International was pressured 
to ignore the <clears throat> humanitarian work of Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, a skeptic of the Duma chemical attack, which they put in scare quotes, that prompted Western powers to bomb Syria. I should interject here that uh, the Duma chemical attack was one of two occasions in which, in response to the attack, the U.S. actually launched some airstrikes on Assad's military bases and destroyed a bunch of airplanes, claimed no civilian casualties, but destroyed a bunch of warplanes, and prompting all of these howls of protest from these so-called anti-war hypocrites who protest when Assad's warplanes get bombed, but don't protest when civilians get bombed and cities get reduced to rubble. All right, returning to the text here. In August of this year, meaning 2020, environmental pressure group Amazon Watch broadcast an online panel discussion in support of Stephen Donzinger, a crusading attorney who dared try to hold U.S. energy giant Chevron to account for widespread environmental destruction in the Amazon and was left fighting for his life, livelihood, and liberty as a result. In February 2011, Chevron was found liable by an Ecuadorian court for contamination resulting from crude oil production in the region by its subsidiary Texaco. Uh, That's actually an error. It was not its subsidiary at the time. It was later bought out by Texaco, was later bought out by Chevron between 1964 and 1992 in a legal action that was many years in the making and led by Donziger. And then it cites a tweet by Ronan Tynan, who was the uh, producer of the movie, the film, The Impossible Revolution, which was a favorable look at the Syrian revolution, and particularly uh, um, based on the book of that name by the Syrian left-wing dissident and veteran of Assad's prisons, Yassin Al-Hajj Saleh. And Ronan writes, I would appeal, he wrote in his tweet, I would appeal to Amnesty USA not to promote this event, given Roger Waters' participation, because he slandered the White Helmets, repeating Russian propaganda, putting their lives at risk when they saved over 150,000 lives. And I cannot remain silent, as I know them well as a filmmaker. I fleshed out the tweet a little bit, because it was actually written in that Twitter shorthand, but that's uh, fleshing it out a little bit. That's what it said. And this is taken as damning by the Gray Zone and RT, There's nothing damning about it. Ronan Tynan is taking precisely the correct position because the last thing that Stephen Donziger and Amazon watch and the impacted indigenous peoples of the Ecuadorian Amazon need is to have their cause mixed up with a personality who is shilling for a genocidal dictator. And I'm not even going to get into the, uh, I could go on. Roger Waters also made some atrocious comments in support of the uh, illegal unilateral Russian annexation of Crimea. But, you know, I mean, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't get how people can fall for this. I just don't get how you can purport to oppose the bombardment of civilians and acts of genocide carried out by Israel in Gaza at the same time that you are actively propagandizing in favor of the bombardment of civilians and acts of genocide by Assad and Putin in Duma and Aleppo and Idlib. I just don't get it. 
I don't get how you can purport to be aghast at the repression and rights abuses that were carried out by Alberto Fujimori in Peru when you were actively propagandizing for the regime of Bashar Assad, which is even worse. And if Alberto Fujimori's massive campaign of coercive sterilization against Campesina and indigenous women in Peru can be seen as genocidal, then even more clearly genocidal is the serial use of poisonous gas and the systematic disappearance and extermination of 100,000 opponents of the regime in Syria. And I'm not talking about battlefield deaths. I'm talking about abduction into a prison gulag where systematic extermination has taken place. Again, all documented by human rights groups. And if you don't know about it, it's because you're living in a confirmation bias bubble and getting all your information from the likes of RT and Gray Zone and Roger Waters. And this is the regime that the guy who once, uh, you know, satirized a fascistic rock star singing about waiting for the final solution has now come to support. And when I saw the video of this incident at the concert in Spain, where the poor guy who made the request to read a statement from the stage in support of the White Helmets was called out by name and publicly humiliated by Roger Waters, and the stadium full of sycophants all applauded when Roger Waters did, you know, something mirroring perfectly what his alter ego did in the wall, his fascist alter ego did in the wall. And, you know, a stadium full of fans applauded because, you know, they worship their, their rock star. I was, you know, I had to recall the, the famous, uh, you know, lyrics from, from uh, you know, the wall protesting <coughs> the authoritarian British education system. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Well, Roger, when you're up on stage in front of, you know, an audience of people who have been worshiping you for years and are going to take what you say as gospel merely because it's coming from you, that is also a form of thought control. So Roger Waters has become exactly what he was satirizing back in 1979. He's become a worm. He's become another brick in the wall. And another line of text which keeps occurring to me is that famous last sentence from George Orwell's Animal Farm. The creatures looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already, it was impossible to say which was which. <clears throat> So I prepared a, um, a little musical number for you, Roger, on the guitar. I dedicate this one to you. It's your own song back at you with the uh, words altered just a little bit. And I think that uh, as satire, it is uh, within the bounds of fair use. If you don't think so, and you wish to um, launch litigation for the use of your song, Roger, I welcome the publicity. So before we go out on this musical note, I will just say that this has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. You can check us out online, where everything that I rant about is fastidiously hyperlinked and documented at countervortex.org. You can support us on Patreon, join The Counter Vortex, join The Resistance, and rant on you next time.
And I mean that, Roger.